Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Log Talk Radio. John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyon. Hello, everyone. A quick reminder before we jump in, uh, today's sponsor is Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Uh, you can listen to audiobooks wherever and whenever you want with Audible.com, and you can get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day trial uh, with our special URL, audibletrial.com slash noonmagician. So if you're going to wander on over there, be sure to use our URL. Um, how's things, Dan? Uh, things are okay, I guess. Uh, it's been a, yet another rough week here uh, in, in Syracuse land, I guess. But um, I don't know. I'm sure we'll get into it pretty pretty quickly. Uh, trying to stay positive and, and at least, I don't know, I almost like that we have the quick turnaround this week because uh, – you know, we got another game on our plate quicker than normal, and hopefully it'll be a win, and then everything will be great, and we'll all stop complaining about everything. Yeah, I mean, I know that um, I'm part of the problem, and I know just about everybody is at this point. It's just this was a season that very much had to start off on the right foot if, if we wanted it to end on the right foot, and and I guess a lot of folks um, are just kind of seeing the handwriting on the wall right now that you know we're now faced with pulling at least a couple upsets if, if we want to make a ball game here. Um, I mean, Saturday's game was was not fun. But at the same time, like, you, you look at those clips, you look at things that did happen. I mean, in particular, I would highlight Hunt actually has a decent deep ball right now. He's just got to get consistent with it. And I think if play calling would have geared itself towards that maybe a little bit earlier in the game, I think we might have maybe had a different outcome in the, in the wins column, but I think we could have actually seen at least a tighter game. I, I agree. Um, he definitely throws better deep ball than he did last year. I, I don't remember 
the last time we we hit so many deep passes in a game. Um, and part of that, I think, was that, I mean, Notre Dame has the book on us. And, and Notre Dame, I think people have, have – we haven't given them enough credit in terms of how good against the run they are. Um, our, what, 135 yards was the highest output against them. And we actually ran for like four and a half a carry, although that was greatly skewed by Riley Dixon's magic. Um, but, like, that that team was just really well designed to take away our greatest threat, which is against the – which is – running the ball. Um, Hunt didn't really get a chance to run the ball very much because they kept him in check for the most part, except for the touchdown scramble he had. But um, I, I think it's actually a bit encouraging that Syracuse is able to identify what a defense was doing, and instead of trying to beat them to the sides and, and on the ground, take advantage of what seemed to be a weakness through the air. And um, I'm also hoping that the lack of screens that we saw as the game progressed was more of us coming to accept our deficiency in that area rather than just us trying to get back from playing from behind. But uh, I think we'll find out a lot more against Louisville. I've I've come to the realization that, A, we have Brizzly's been hurt and hasn't really produced like we thought he would. Our most productive receivers so far really have been West, who seems to be having a bit of the breakout that we thought he would last year and, and we're hoping he would have this year. Um, Ishmael's good for a, a big catch or two a game. And then Ben Lewis has been very productive, uh, especially considering what we, we didn't expect much out of him. So those guys are all like bigger, more flankery type receivers. So hopefully we're realizing more that we don't have the personnel to run a very highly efficient stream game. That, that and we don't block well for it, which is a whole other issue. So maybe we'll start to see uh, George McDonald calling more down the field passes just because that's what we seem to be better at. Yeah, I mean, the screens have really reduced over the last few weeks, and I don't know if it's a it's a product of receivers getting better at being open downfield or whether teams are gearing themselves up towards screens. You know, I mean, it seemed like just about every time Hunt ID'd single coverage, um, you know, 15, 20, 25 yards out, he was able to hit a man in stride. I mean, some of those balls that he delivered, I mean, that, that opening pass in the first and the second half, um, both of those were, were, were some of the better throws I've seen, period. I mean, not just from Hunt. Um, and so I, I think we are kind of transitioning a little bit. I would note on the running game, um, it, it's interesting that, and I, I noticed this in the in the play calling breakdown too, that um, we pretty much abandoned the right side um, in the run game after um, Ivan Foley went out. And I think that that was a big, factor, as was, you know, Hunt was very, was obviously, you know, a bit hurt from that, uh, from that hit to his hip, um, you know, late in the, in the first half, and I think those two things really did contribute. I actually think while Notre Dame did play well against the run, I think that if it wasn't for the boy injury and, and, and Hunt being a little banged up, I do think we would have been much more productive on the ground, and I mean, again, might not have changed the final score, but at the same time, I think it might have it might have provided a much different look for the offense to, to actually have both sides of the field to utilize in the running game and to have Hunt. Um, I, because I think Notre Dame was able to kind of um, operate without a, much of a fear of Hunt taking off um, for the second half. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's still encouraging that Syracuse was, was competitive pretty much into the fourth quarter. Like, uh, it wasn't 
it took me a long time to like officially say we're not going to win this game, although it didn't feel like great. We were kind of stagnant, but Syracuse didn't get his doors blown off. It didn't look outclassed. Um, the last two times we faced an opponent as highly ranked as Notre Dame, and you can debate whether or not they're overrated, but they're still a, a very good team, I think. And the last two times we played a team similarly ranked where they're eighth in the country, um, we got our doors blown off. One of those times was at the Dome by Clemson, and I, I think Notre Dame is probably not as good as that Clemson team or the Florida State team, but Syracuse still hung with them. They put up 429 yards, which was by far the most anyone's gotten on Notre Dame this year, including, uh, I mean, Rice was the second most. Rice runs a pretty fun offense. Michigan's a train wreck, but they couldn't even hit 300 yards, and then Purdue was also under 300 yards. So I, I don't know. I still don't know what's going on in the red zone uh, or even, like, inside the 30. It almost seems like our offense kind of has the yips when we get into that part of the field when it doesn't really have an issue moving to that part of the field. But I'm I'm staying encouraged just based on, on the fact that Notre Dame's a really good team. Um, Everett Olsen, I think, showed he had – I mean, he was upset by his performance, and he also completed 25 uh, passes in a row – which is kind of a weird confluence, but he, he had no real issue moving the chains. Um, the Syracuse defense made a couple of really big plays, which is why most people are, are really upset. I think people would be less annoyed if we had only forced two turnovers and lost by two touchdowns, um, but instead we forced five, which is disheartening, but what are you going to do? So there were positives, I think. I, I, I feel better after this game than I did after the Maryland game because I think Notre Dame is a much better team than Maryland but there are still things that need to be fixed, obviously, moving forward. Uh, and this weekend's a huge game because I think Louisville's a lot more ripe to be picked off than we thought a couple weeks ago, uh, especially with their quarterback situation being unsettled. So if, we, if Syracuse knocks off Louisville, they're 3-2, and two, and that's about what people thought they would be after five games. They probably just thought that it would be Maryland and not Louisville. That would be the third win. Yeah, I mean, I think for me what I want to see on Friday is Obviously, win most importantly, but uh, I want to get past this self-defeating attitude that, that it feels like the team is just kind of adopting these last few weeks, and it's not just you know in the final score. It's and we've talked about it. You know, the, the, these punts inside the forty. These, I mean, that field goal call down nineteen in the fourth. I, I so incredibly frustrating to see that sort of. I mean, Schaefer's a fiery guy. I. I I find it hard to believe there's any quit in him, but then I see those sorts of calls and I get, I start to question, they're like, well, well, what are we here for? And, and, you know, like you see, you go through some of the play calling from, from Saturday and we, we would follow up big games with, with, you know, straight dives up the middle that were completely telegraphed. I, I know I posted this one stat that I think was, was the most jarring, um, Syracuse ran 67 plays on Saturday. Um, 12 of them accounted for 304 yards of our 429 yards of offense, which means that the other 55 plays only racked up 125 yards in total, showing that we have big play capability, but this team for some reason rests on the ability to make big plays instead of understanding that you need to – you know, do continue to do what works. And, and if you're going to pick up 30 yards on pass play, keep throwing the ball, especially if you're getting stuck in the run. It just this team is this team is not efficient. I think we all know that as people who watch the games. But the numbers, unfortunately, might tell a different story 
um, that this team actually can move the ball consistently. Yeah, it was a weird it was a weird offensive game, um, mostly because this is the first time that Syracuse was had the run taken away from it. So I guess it's encouraging that they were able to to throw for almost 300 yards. It wasn't, but it was kind of all over the place. But they showed a, a big playability that that the passing game really hasn't in the past. I mean, I'm looking at at the ESPN box score, the top uh, our top six receivers out of seven that caught the ball. West had a long of 33. Lewis had a 46-yard reception where he almost touched it in. Brisley had a 38-yard reception. Ishmael had 25. Fleming 16, more 14. Like, when was the last time we had six different guys catch passes for, for 14 or more yards? Like, we last year we started to throw. If we caught a, a 15-yard reception, we were thrilled um, because the offense – and, and the, last year the offense struggled to put up 300 yards total. Now we're putting up close to 500 with – without much of an issue like that's the standard so there's been improvements i still think mcdonald clearly isn't comfortable calling a game yet and we saw a lot of the same things in the second year first and second year of nate hackett so i'm a little more prone to giving him more time even though it is incredibly frustrating um but it's uh you hope that as we get into it's the meat of our schedule but we won't face a team as does notre dame aside from Clemson and Florida State, and most of us weren't really including those in our bid plans for wins this year. So I think a lot of the other games that we have coming up, teams don't look quite as good as, as they did um, between Louisville and Duke and, and Pitt lost to Akron, which is hilarious, although we shouldn't really uh, make too much fun because we've done that before, although we did it in a year where we knew we were bad. And B.C., they also a good Colorado State team, but they're clearly not always the team that beat USC. So it's I'm I'm not ready to give up on the bowl hopes yet. It's just uh, this weekend's a huge one now. This this will be this will really set the stage, I think, because then we just need to to kind of hold serve and we should be okay. Right, I think that's a big struggle here. You know, it's it's kind of figuring out okay, like what's the mirage, what isn't, what do we know through four games? Um, I know I did that article uh, on Monday about, like, you know, where we stood at the one-third mark. And overall, Syracuse really hasn't looked that impressive through four games um, at any point in the last decade, mostly because we haven't really looked that impressive at all for most of the last decade. Um, but, but I do think there, there's positives to bring out. Um, and I think at the same time, though, this is a fan base looking for places to place blame. And I know I've kind of rested on McDonald and decision-making, um, I mean, Dan, I know that you're not – you typically don't like to, to place blame on on players at all. I mean, do you do you think if you have to throw blame at someone for, for the two-and-two two start when it could have, to be honest, not it, – it's not inconceivable to say we could be four and out. Um, we could also be one and three, however. So do you think yeah. it, it's yeah. placing the blame on McDonald? Uh, it's spread around. I actually probably put more on Schaefer than McDonald. I think the – the punts are going to be are his call, um, and the punts drive me nuts. Like, I tweeted, I don't remember, I think it was actually during an NFL game, but, you know, it's it's the same mindset for Syracuse. A punt is a turnover. Like, I know we have a really good punter, and he's fun, and we like to root for him. And I, I don't, I'm not one of the people who thinks that we should never punt. But when it's fourth and two inside the 50, you shouldn't punt. Like, we, we have a power running game. A two-yard gain is not an insurmountable thing to do, and even if you know you're not you're not sure you can do it every time, that's not a reason to not play the odds because 
a team like Syracuse should be able to pick up two yards against about any defense, you know, 75% of the time. And with a punt, you're not gaining a first down ever. It's 0%. And only, you know, as does Riley Dixon is, you know, even he's going to pitch some balls out of the end zone. It's just the football's a weird-shaped object. So there's no perfect – like, a punt is, is – is, you're never converting a first down with it. You're, it's almost something crazy happens, and, and the punt team does – the return team does something stupid. And you're very – you're not even guaranteed to get it inside the 10 or the 5. That's even a coin flip proposition, even with a ticker as good as Dixon. It, so that that's a Schaefer thing. Like he's he's very fiery, and he seems to to take his shots in weird spots where he he won't take a, a fourth and two on offense and try to go for it there, where you're going to probably convert more often than not. But then he'll onside kick it earlier than he probably needs to, where it's what maybe a twenty percent chance you get it, probably less. So he he's still learning too. I like Schaefer a lot. I hope he succeeds. Uh, a lot of other people are seem to be quickly running out of patience. But um, I don't know if that's fair or not yet. But it, 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 those types of things drive me nuts. I, I, I don't know why so many coaches, and it's not just ours, are so unwilling to admit that they're underdogs or that they um, need to do things outside of the general standards of football, like punting on fourth down to win games. It just seems like a stubbornness thing where you don't want to admit that you are forcing the issue or, you know, or that you can't play a straight-up game when I think that team should embrace the the whole, the, I think they call them, what, the, the David strategies, where they you just want to give yourself a better chance because you know you're an underdog. And we seem unwilling to do that. Yeah, I think that's, that might be a crux of the issue. And, you know, usually when you see a fan base that, that is continually aggravated, um, a failure to accept being the underdog is is part of it. If you're not, I mean, you know, unless you're college football's you know upper upper crust. Um, I do think we need to give McDonald more time. I think he deserves two full seasons. But that said, you know, at some point you either know how to call games or you don't. You either know how to, you know, deal with personnel or you don't. And I mean, the injuries stacking up at this point aren't great either. And it'll certainly be an easy scapegoat for, for defenders. But that said, like, we just – I guess this fan base maybe got ahead of itself when it came to, you know, what what Marone was able to accomplish and, and now kind of where we're at. Everyone expected last year to be the step back, this year to be the step forward again. Um, and because of a very difficult schedule, you know, that might not – come to fruition, I think that's going to be, um, no matter what happens this season, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for, uh, for SU fans to kind of rectify their minds. It's too, it's, I think it's, it's not the smartest thing to just judge a team. I know the whole adage of, of you are what your, wins, your record says you are, but Syracuse is a much harder schedule this year, but just looking at the, at the raw stats of it, like the offense is definitely better. It's not throwing a ton of points, but it's it's definitely a better offense. They didn't score points last year either. The defense is probably not quite as good yet, but I think overall this is a better team than Syracuse had last year. The problem is that the schedule isn't conducive to adding wins, um, and it's still they still might. Uh, but I think it's it's 
far too easy to lean on. They won six games last year, and now they might only win six games this year. Therefore, they're not improving. Um, there are certain things that aren't improving, but overall, this is a much um, – I think it's definitely an easier team to watch. It's frustrating, but last year they just couldn't store in a lot of games, and they had to pitch shutouts. This year they can – they you know, move the ball and they give themselves a chance at least. So it's, I think the fact that these two games have been so frustrating where last year when we lost, we lost pretty big. Um, you know, maybe that's actually making fans more annoyed. I don't know. I don't think they'd be happy if we just got run off the field by Notre Dame either. So it's hard to, it's hard to please people, but after central Michigan, we were all back on board. So if Syracuse used to knock off Louisville here, um, I think things will be a lot better. Yeah, you know, you're bringing that up. I mean, last year we were 2-2 two and two after four, including a really tight loss that probably would have ended differently if Hunt was there, a complete blowout to Northwestern, and then two complete blowouts in our favor. This year, you know, pulled a rabbit out of our ass in game one, one anyway, blew out Central Michigan more than anyone thought we could, and then actually hung tough with two teams. I mean, Maryland, we're not going to give them credit until they actually earn it, but at the same time, like, they haven't played poorly this year. They blew out um, a and then too. I mean, yeah. they're, I think Maryland's okay. <laughs> I, I didn't expect as much from Maryland this year, but, I mean, they, they beat Indiana, which is not a bad team, by what, three touchdowns? Yeah, I mean, F-plus says that they're top 40 right now, and that's one of the – I mean, considering the shape of the Big Ten right now, that's actually pretty decent, um, pretty decent record. So, so I think overall, like, yeah, we're, we're not we're not world beaters. But that said, like, if you're going to hang tough with with the top ten team, you're going to hang tough with a team like Maryland that looks like they're bowl bound at some point. Um, I mean, we're getting there. I guess all of us just need to kind of scale back, remind ourselves that it's baby steps, and remind ourselves that you know sometimes. I mean, look at what happened in 2011, and I praise pray that we don't experience this again. You know, strong start, weak finish, finish five five and seven. Everyone thinks that we completely, like, cratered. And then 2012, we've talked about this, could have broke a different way. We could have been 10-3 and three in the orange ball. So, I mean, you just kind of have to view it as this is all a growing process. No, this program isn't perfect. I'd argue there's pieces of it that they definitely lack um, from personnel to staffing, but at the same time, there's not one person who could sit here and tell you that we're a worse program now than we were in 2009 when Marone took over. And I think if you view it in that lens, it's kind of hard to get pissed off. Yeah, it, it's it's a much better team now. Like people, I've seen some of that, and some people so frustrated that we haven't you know surged to a BCS bowl at this point. Um, it's 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 a very it's not the easiest thing in the world, and people totally underestimate how difficult it is to recruit to a school like Syracuse, and how it, like the, the program is a lot working against it. So the fact that I, I feel I felt like the first time heading into the Notre Dame game, like all we heard, a we had so much more commentary about it, and that's you know people made fun of the MetLife games, and clearly there was something going on there because a lot of them were you know the, they were put on hold apparently, but. For the first time heading into a game, I did not hear very much of Syracuse as an awful program or to get blown out. We heard a lot of 
I, almost everyone in the national uh, level said, you know, this is a decent Syracuse team, um, and they're probably going to play Notre Dame pretty tough, and that's what happens. So I do think we're slowly seeing the tide turn, but that doesn't automatically mean that, you know, once you win seven games a couple times, you're going to start winning nine and ten. Like, there's, there's a whole – that's probably even going to be the longer part of the process is to break through. And even if you do once, it doesn't mean that's going to be every year. So um, I'm looking up the stat right now, but like I saw somewhere like Syracuse has only won eight games in its history, like a dozen times or something. So, and I know a lot of that's because schedules were shorter back in the day, but it's not like this was a team, even in the glory days that was just an automatic, you know, big, big East champion. Like the, the, the high points were the, that they won eight games year in year out, or they won you know nine, ten every so often. But I think people have almost overestimated how good the '90s were because what happened after was so bad. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's really the tough part. There is if you're only comparing the absolute best and the absolute worst, it's kind of hard to see that the middle might be reality. Um, I know, you know, we, and we've seen pieces like this before on on the site too. I think. Both of us have alluded to it. I think Matt McCluskey usually does a nice job of kind of bringing up that point. That, you know, we don't... We hold a very high standard for the program. It doesn't necessarily mean that we actually should. Um, slight divergence. I know I uh, saw a comment on the site that brought in some feedback from uh, Prince Tyson Gully, uh, kind of channeling the Syracuse secondary uh, today, was saying, and I quote, after these first four games, I know we can compete with anybody. I will tell you that. We just have to execute what we are doing. I do not think there is any team out there that is just so much better than us. I don't see that out there. We really have to go back to work and go back to the drawing board and do what we have to do. So, no, I wouldn't say that this quote is out of line or or brash by any means, but that said, like, we remember, I mean, Louisville made up a quote a couple of years ago <laughs> when we faced them. They did. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, giving them one, like, you know what, we haven't proved we can match up with anyone. We've proven we can hang in games. If you go 0-12 and, and you lose every game by 3, it's the same as going 0-12 and, and lose a game by 40. Yeah, that, that's, I don't know. I, I respect players not, you know, automatically going out there and laying down and admitting that they're not going to just lose, but I'd rather guys just not say anything, I guess. Um, I actually just looked it up. We've won, since the 1959 championship, we've won eight games or more 15 times in 55 years. So not exactly the everlasting standard of Syracuse football. Yeah, so we might want to chill with all this tough talk. I mean, yeah. we laughed after the secondary said what they said, and in the two games since, they've got absolutely obliterated. I mean, I Wiggum said, but, but Wiggum just said F. Any, anyone implies that those offenses wouldn't do that, and they did. Right. And like, I mean, Wiggum, late in that game against Notre Dame, just said F it, and just started grabbing guys for the hell of it. Like, I mean, I like Wiggum. I like the secondary. I think there's room for growth. But that said, like, let's not let's not play games. You guys are talented. 
Eskridge is far and away the best per- the best player in that secondary. Um, and it's going to be a process. Like I'm, that, that's the problem here. I think a lot of fans feel the same way. I'm willing to invest in the process, and I'm willing to wait it out for this secondary to get better. But don't give me, you know, smack talk and this lip in the media that that, that you're ready that you're ready to ascend to something capable. You know, when, when you're very much not yet. And, like, I'm fine with you not being there, but stop telling people you are. Yeah, and also we probably shouldn't be matching up Corey Winfield on William Fuller, but that's a different – that's not the player's fault, I don't think. <laughs> Dog. I mean, I like Corey Winfield. I think he's a good kid. That's it. He just started playing corner, like, yesterday, and he was facing right. the best Notre Dame receiver. <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward. I mean, this is kind of, and this will be good before we hit halftime. Uh, be good to kind of talk about next week. I mean, I saw an Anquan Corey uh, sighting in the on the depth chart, and that doesn't really mean much to Schaefer. But at the same time, it's it's good to start getting some of these kids' names popping up um, if we're looking for a solution in the secondary. Yeah, um, I think I think he said before the game that Winfield played instead of him just because Winfield was older, which. I guess when neither one's played corner, you might as well toss the the older one out there because he's, you know, seen the field before a couple times. But uh, yeah, I mean that that um, Wayne Morgan injury is is something to watch out for because he really was like there's a big gap between him and the rest of the guys. And I think Reddish has actually played a lot better this year than he has in the past. Um, and then Wiggum, you know, he's had some really tough matchups. But uh, after that, I mean, teams are going to run. We're, we're going to see plenty of teams run three and four receivers out there. So if we don't have Morgan to match up with a slot guy or match up with a guy uh, on the outside, like, you know, we saw it in Maryland. Their third receiver was very good, too, Leak. Um, and we held the two big guys in check, but then the third guy went off. So there are going to be more teams like that that we face. So we kind of need him to get back, hopefully, fairly soon. Although Schaefer hasn't really made it sound like it's a too bad an injury, so hopefully he won't miss too much time. The same goes for everybody who's injured. I mean, right now we kind of started stockpiling important injuries. I mean, uh, Royal, Esteem, Foy, Morgan, to name a few. It sounds like um, it sounds like Avant's back. Yeah, he was the guy like that. Uh, I don't know. I, I thought I you know read that he was impressive going into the year, and then he kind of disappeared. It's hard to keep track of all these guys. We have so many, so many players who pop up, uh, and then just kind of go in and out of the depth chart. But hopefully, we uh, we keep on getting these guys back. Yeah, I mean, between him and then you know, having Josh Harris back, I mean, Kendall Moore is probably out for a bit. So I think we're going to end up seeing uh, Jamal Custis back. What concerns me, and I guess we'll. This will be like the last thing before halftime. Um, is just, I'm not a huge fan of how we're kind of messing around with this, like the personnel. I think it's very, especially on offense. I just think it's difficult. I think we we're getting results. I think it's very difficult for these players to stay motivated when they know, like, if you're a Devonta McFarlane or a George Morris, who is supposed to have you know a key role in the in the offense this year, and now suddenly. You're getting one touch a game while, you know, Irv Phillips, who still doesn't appear on a depth chart for some stupid reason, like, 
you know, takes all the carries that would have been yours. It just, I can understand why some of these kids might get a little frustrated as, like, it, there's very obviously a pecking order now of, you know, in, in the passing game, Esteem, Ishmael, West. Um, in the run game, it's PTG, Ami Moore, and Phillips. Um, I just think we kind of had to come out and say it, like, that those are the guys. Yeah, it's also difficult when the the team is kind of offensively sporadic where it goes on big drives and you want to keep the guys that are productive in, and then other times when another guy might have a shot, uh, we go three and out. So I think a little more consistency with, with, you know, we're running not quite the 80 plays that McDonald wanted, but, you know, it, we've hit 80 and 79, and then the other two games were kind of, you know, Notre Dame just t- stayed on the field, and Villanova was a whole other issue. Um, but I think that inconsistency where some drives are just incredibly long and there's not a lot in between where otherwise we're just not getting first downs at all, um, that's probably part of the reason why. Because when you have PTG and, a, and, I mean, more gashing people, you don't want to take them out for someone else who hasn't had the touches yet. No, totally fair. And I think that that is a lot of, a lot of why we're seeing what we're seeing is just if one guy's running well, you keep him in, he doesn't need them. Um, on that note, I guess we'll uh, coast into halftime um, before we jump into beer, as per usual. I just want to give another shout-out to our sponsor, Audible.com. Uh, Training an Absolute Podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible. Uh, they're a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment information, and if you didn't know already... They have 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including the one you're listening to us on right now. If you sign up at our URL, audibletrial.com slash noonsmagician, get yourself a free audiobook and a one-month free trial. Um, a couple of book recommendations here. Um, for those who are uh, familiar with Kentucky, you might know that they are big fans of bourbon, so, um, look up some books about bourbon for us. Uh, one of them is called Beam Straight Up, The Bold Story of the First Family of Bourbon. And it's actually by the uh, current master distiller, Jim Beam, uh, Friedrich Booker Nova. So, yeah, uh, basically just about how the family got started making bourbon and how they're still making bourbon today. So, that's cool. Um, another one. I found this kind of cool, is uh, Bourbon for Breakfast, Living Outside the Status Quo. Um, <laughs> basically, just kind of, uh, just kind, of, kind of, you know, explores some different things overall in, in terms of uh, acting outside of, of what society deems to be the norm, but Bourbon for Breakfast is one of them. So, if you're into bourbon, those are two books for you. Um Unrelated to our typical beer discussion, um, you been drinking any bourbon lately, Dan? Uh, not so much lately. Although that's generally my my uh, out my hard liquor of choice. Uh, I'll go with bourbon or you know, usually bourbon ginger is my my main mix. But uh, I do I do enjoy some bourbons. Right. Not this. I know I uh, clearly cut it out this recently, week. Really upgraded my. Uh, a liquor cabinet here. I know I got uh, got some Bullet 10-year, 
which heard delicious things about. Maybe it was regular bullets, so I read that. Um, and some avion on the tequila front, which most people might know from uh, Entourage fame. But it actually is legit tequila. I'm a fan. Um, and it's just more, we're looking to step up my game a little bit in terms of non-beer. Yes, I do drink things that are not beer. So if anyone thought I was an alcoholic before, now you're probably convinced. I can't I can't do tequila. That's like, that's my, it just doesn't, doesn't agree with me. I'm such a big fan. I get super angry though. <laughs> Tequila is just one of those, like, everybody I know, they have a couple shots of tequila, they get, like, super aggressive. It's not that. I just, like, I just can't deal with the flavor, the taste of it. It's Any other alcohol I'm okay with, generally. Um, but tequila, I just can't can't do. Eh, I don't judge. I feel like everyone has one, like, one one type of hard liquor that they just can't drink. And that's, that's mine. Yep. I hate vodka. Yep, see, there you go. <laughs> just from drinking way too much of a freshman year and then just getting bad memories. That's fair. That'll happen, especially at the certified number one party school in the country, RIP Castle Tort. Woo! I drank at Castle Tort one whole time in my four years, and it was the most magic day of my life, as I've been told. So much tradition. Tradition unlike any other. Castle Tort, RIP, 2013 to 2014. All right, so I guess we'll get into drinking some real um, beverages. Dan, what have you been consuming for the past week or so? Um, Nothing too crazy. Well, nothing too good crazy. Uh, more pumpkin head, which I brought to the tailgate this weekend. Um, which I didn't realize it's in cans now as well. It tasted fine. Uh, usually I found it only in bottles and on tap, but they, they've been canning it, which is nice. Made it easy to bring. Um, a friend of mine brewed some, you know, brewed, uh, home-brewed an IPA and brought it, which was pretty good, quite a hoppy. Uh, you're not going to find that anywhere, I don't think, So unless you, you know, visit people that I know. Um, and then the normal, like, Bud Light and other stuff for tailgating. I will I will admit that I feel like this is a good thing for my soul to get it out there. At halftime of the Syracuse Notre Dame game, I was a little, you know, not quite too overserved, but I had had plenty before the game, um, and I wanted a drink and I wanted something that was refreshing, and I was more than my fair share of tipsy. So I walked down to the concourse and I saw a Right outside of my gate was a frozen Bud Light Lime Marita vendor, and in my inebriation, I thought that was a good idea because I wanted something nice and cool and refreshing, and it was so disgusting, I can't even fathom drinking it again. Like, it wasn't bad. Like The beginning of every sip wasn't too bad. It just tasted like a frozen limeade or something, and then you just get hit with this aftertaste of, like, stale Bud Light. <laughs> It was so I, – I was I would have drank a lot of things at that moment, and I couldn't take more than, like, probably four sips of it. And I just put it down. I'm like, I'll eat that that $12 purchase because it was gross. And I've had regular Bud Light Lime, and it's, you know, it's what you expect. It's just really – it tastes like you mix Bud Light and lime juice, whatever. This was 
awful. So don't don't get, don't get frozen Bud Light Limeritas at a uh, MetLife Stadium because they are disgusting. Man, if things take a turn south against Wake Forest, you and me might need to have a uh, <laughs> Bud Light Arita challenge. <laughs> if we're losing, but if we're losing at halftime at Wake Forest, we're both going to the. Uh, if they have them there, we're going to go just have a chug off, and we'll just get really bad brain freeze. <laughs> we'll just collapse in the concourse and not watch the rest of the game. <laughs> yeah, if anyone's going to be at the Wake Forest game, if we're losing by halftime, Dan and I might find us. We'll, we'll need to be resuscitated. Dan and I also found out, based on the seating chart, that we'll be sitting very close to one another. So we're going to have a lot of live accounts of this thing to, to recap in a couple of weeks. <laughs> we should do like a live podcast from like a bar there or something. Be such a disaster. You'd actually hear we'd get we get to the bar and you'd hear me get progressively drunk at the podcast. I'm actually I actually kind of want to do this. Maybe we'll bring a tape recorder or something. Uh, <laughs> it could it could be very very entertaining or very bad if depending on how the game goes. Especially because Wake so looks pretty game against Louisville. Like that defense isn't too bad. The offense still can't do anything, but the defense isn't isn't that bad. Well, the secondary is great. I, I've yeah. been a big fan of secondary for years. Unfortunately, they're going to all graduate as the rest of the team gets up to snuff, and then they'll have a really young secondary that'll probably be taken advantage of down the stretch in the next couple of years. But for this year, it's it's. I mean, they're, they're playing better than they probably should. They're playing, I think, over their talent level. It might not reflect in the win loss the win loss record, but they've been less of a train wreck than I expected. So good good on them. I, I thought that was a good hire. I think Clawson's a good coach. So. Good for the Deeks. And by that. All right, some of my recents. Um, currently enjoying a uh, Eagle Rock Unity Pale Ale. Um, this one's interesting because uh, LA Beer Week just wrapped up. And uh, so Eagle Rock, one of the larger brewers in the LA area, um, brewed uh, with like 14 or 15 other members of the LA Brewers Guild. Uh, this year's kind of official beer of LA Beer Week. So kind of cool. Just an enjoyable pale ale. Um, nothing to like rant and rave about or complain about. It's just a decent beer. Um, and then I do some trading. So I got a heavy machinery wet hop IPA from Austin Beer Works. Um, if you're ever down in Texas, Austin Beer Works makes some delicious, delicious beer. Um, and anytime I've had selections from them, I'm always impressed. During Saturday's game, uh, we got a man laws and me, a couple of buddies of mine. We were drinking around noon Pacific time, so definitely, uh, definitely a long day of drinking. So tried to kind of mix in with with every like substantial beer. Try to throw in some uh, some sessions and such. So had a few even keels from uh, Ballast Point, which most of you have probably had or tried if you're into craft beer. So one of the better really session IPAs out there. Also had myself a uh, breakfast out from uh, Founders, another one that was sent out here from Texas. Um, most everyone in New York and the general Northeast area gets Founders, but this was last year's breakfast out, so aged about 11 months or so. Uh, very, very good stuff. Um, and yeah, that was uh, that was most of my beer intake the last week. I have a I have a full fridge of new stuff, so. Maybe dive into that in a couple of weeks, and I'll have plenty more to share in the future. Yeah, Founders Breakfast is good. Founders Anything is pretty good, is my experience with them for the most part. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big fan. I do wish they were out here. Because, like, out of all the session IPAs, the even keel would probably be my top that I can get on a regular basis. But um, they're all-day IPA from Founders. It's just such a great session beer. And I really wish it was out here. Um, also, side note, you're a big fan of, uh, well, not, I, mean, I know you're a big fan of all pumpkin beers, but you like Smashed Pumpkin, right, from uh, Shipyard? The double? Uh, yeah. They have it in four packs now. Interesting. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's something I saw when I was at Total Wine the other day. So that they had uh, in four packs of that. I was impressed. Yeah, I haven't had that one yet this year. I've had the, the pumpkin head is their more light pumpkin beer, and that comes in 12s yep. and 6s, I think. Um, I haven't had the smashing pumpkin yet this year, but I'm sure I'll find it soon. Yeah, I mean, I know, I mean, at least for me, I know Total Wine had, I hopped in there the other day and spent a bunch of money, and they had, a, they had like a full display of all the pumpkin beers, um, as well as uh, another beer I picked up, uh, Autumn Maple from uh, the brewery. It's a really, really good uh Sort of, yeah, mostly Belgian style. Kind of Belgian style, sort of pumpkin-y, but not really. Uh, tough to really, I mean, it has pumpkin flavor, but I'd say the uh, the spice and syrup and molasses are really going to be the overriding thing here. Uh, yeah, I got a bottle of that in there, and then uh, next week I'm picking up a, uh, you know, my allocation for Q3 from the brewery. One of them is uh, Ignis Fatus. The, uh, they're like pumpkin rum beer, so psyched for that. That's going to be a busy sports and uh, beer weekend for me. Got that Louisville game on Friday. Uh, Saturday, Dodgers playoffs. And then Sunday, I'm headed down to San Diego to watch the Jets get uh, get murdered by San Diego. Yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely going to happen. San Diego's pretty good, and the Jets are pretty yeah, nice. Right. The Rivers is, is very good. I'm going to – I mean, granted, like, I don't really have a horse in that race. It's just more me going because my in-laws are all big Chargers fans. But Saturday I'm excited for because I haven't been to a major league baseball playoff game. So for me, seeing a little uh, – seeing some Zach Greinke, and hopefully uh, Dodgers taking a 2 nothing lead against the Cardinals would be, uh, would be pretty enjoyable. Yeah, please beat the Cardinals. Oh, don't worry, Dan. I'm still a mess fan at heart, and I know exactly why you hate the Cardinals, because it's the same reason I do. They're the best fans in baseball. <laughs> the classiest. The classiest. They just... The, there's no other fan base quite like them in terms of just class, and they're just a, a higher level of sports fan, I think. I mean, they're so classy. They, they even said earlier this year that Derek Jeter was almost good enough to wear the Cardinal uniform. Derek Jeter, yeah, he was uh, not quite Cardinal level, but close. Almost as classy. Almost Cardinal worthy. If only they could have found out for sure, but he had to go stay with one team his whole career. For those yeah, who might forget... Yeah. So uh, last year, the Dodgers were just playing baseball like normal people do when the Dodgers decided to start making class accusations about who was being more classy, and their fan base jumps right on. Then, well, it was them. They were being more classy. They're the Cardinals. That's not even a, an issue. 
It's like, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I wasn't allowed to celebrate. I did something good. But uh, the root of the hate for, for both Dan and I really comes from a certain series in 2006, which, uh, which I won't talk about much, though I did punch a hole in my wall outside my freshman room, dorm, my freshman dorm room. Um, after a certain catch in the eighth inning, I really thought the Mets were going back to the World Series in 2006. They were not. I did. I was at game. Catcher named Yadier Molina. I was at game six of that series where the Mets won convincingly, and I was like, "All right, we have all the momentum. We're gonna win tomorrow night, and then we're gonna go to the World Series." And nope. Just so but we persevere on into through another losing season, and next year maybe we'll be slightly better. But who knows? Well, that's the problem. Is that that year that year almost murdered off the Miracle Mets for good? Like everyone who's a long time Mets fan remembers the Miracle Mets, amazing Mets. You knew that if the Mets had a back to the wall, they'd win. That's what the team did. 2006, started killing that off. 2007, took that out back and shot it in the face. Damn you, Tom Blavin. That's a complex. Oh, yeah. I don't want to talk about the Mets anymore. Can we move move on to something more more, uh, happy like Syracuse football? Yeah. (laughs) The only time Syracuse football is better. It's unbelievable. All right, so I guess we got to talk about this Louisville game a little bit. Um, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. So Louisville really doesn't know who his quarterback is at the moment, which is actually good for us. Because Will Gardner, I mean, we really didn't buy into him earlier. But at the same time, he has played well. Um, meanwhile, uh, Reggie Bonifon, fun name, dude, has um, not looked great. The overall Louisville offense kind of derailed itself in the last few weeks. Uh, running games really dropped off a ton. Uh, passing games are not there. Louisville's defense has kind of taken over in terms of, you know, why this team continues to win. So, for me, I, I think that plays a, a lot to our strengths, wouldn't you? Yeah, I'm a lot less scared of this Louisville team, especially bon- if Bonifon's in there. He he was, you know, a 50% passer last week against Wake Forest, who, you know, we said they have a, pretty, a good secondary, but... I mean, I don't. They don't get after the passer very much. Like they're not a great team by any means. So he doesn't scare me too much. Um, the running game has been not great. They're running their 82nd in the country in rushing. Uh, they just haven't looked that good overall. Virginia beat them, and I, I know we're all high in Virginia now after just making fun of them for months. Um, and Virginia's legit, but Louisville we thought would be a, a pretty easy bet to beat them. FIU. They beat him by 31, but FIU is really bad, and they really didn't put that game away for a long time. And then Wake, they only beat by 10, and, and while we think Wake's better than they probably should be, Wake only got 122 yards passing, they got negative 22 yards rushing, and they lost by 10. Like, they couldn't do anything on offense and still were in the game late. And Louisville's defense is, is quite good. Um, as we we thought, but like you said, the receivers. I thought I, even with Devontae Parker out, I thought they had enough there uh, between Michael Lee Harris and Eli Rogers and James Quick, where they'd really be able to put together a solid passing game. And obviously, 
Um, Will Gardner's been out, but they just haven't been that impressive throwing the ball and then rushing the ball. Um, Brennan Radcliffe was really good against Wake, but overall it just hasn't been a, a very consistent offense at all. So I'm I'm pretty positive going into this game because I think that Syracuse will will bottle up the run as they've been doing all year. Um, if Bonifon plays, I think that's a really tough situation to play a Syracuse team that is so aggressive with the blitzing steam. So I'm I'm very interested to see how how we go, especially a week after playing a guy like Golson. I don't know if it'll be like one of those things where you play a really hard team and then you know the, the weaker team seems easier. But uh, this could be – I could see this one going a lot of different ways, but I, I'm definitely encouraged, especially if, if Gardner is out. And do you think that Louisville could get caught looking ahead to Clemson at all? Uh, they shouldn't because we – smoked them last time they played at the Dome, which a lot of those players that are on the team now were around for. So hopefully you wouldn't think so, but it could always happen. I mean, that's, that's you know, it seems to be something that happens in college football a decent amount. If you were a betting man, you could find an imaginary quote that Louisville would post up on a <laughs> cardboard cutout of Ryan Nassis. What would it be? Uh, Syracuse has never lost at the Carrier Dome the week after playing a game at MetLife Stadium, which I don't know if that's true or not. Um, yeah. Well, didn't, we didn't play at, we didn't play at Met, the Dome after MetLife last year, and then the USC game, I don't remember who we played right after. Um, so it might not, it might be true. It might be a one and O type thing, but I could see Ryan and having pretended to say that. And I guess looking at Louisville, and I know I asked this of, uh, of Mike Rutherford over at Card Chronicle for the uh, Q&A. Um, and do you see this ever being a legitimate rivalry? I know we've kind of wanted it. And to be honest, like the, the, the history is there to, to create it. But do you think this ever becomes a rivalry? Do you think the divisions realign before that? Um, if if we're in the same division, I could actually see it probably more than the pit game. Um, I think BC is more natural, but I think that the nice thing about Louisville is that it plays more into the two sport thing, um, where the basketball. I think the basketball thing, the basketball series is already. It's not Georgetown or UConn, but I think it's two really good programs that've been playing for a while now. So I, I don't hesitate to really call that a rivalry, if even if it's not one of the Syracuse rivalries. I think it's still a pretty healthy series that, you know, the two coaches are have a, a long relationship. The two programs are really good and have had big wins over each other. Uh, they've both won fairly recent national championships. Um, I think the fact that this has the potential to be a two-sport rivalry where BC, you know, basketball-wise really hasn't been good for a while now, um, I think it should definitely be something. And I think even though the schools are, are very different, they have similar they're, – they're similar athletically in that basketball is clearly the first one, but there, there are football aspirations. Um, so I, I, I fully welcome Syracuse-Louisville uh, Syracuse, um, being a thing going forward. Yeah, I mean, you know, even if you know, – the divisions realign. I still think we end up playing Louisville a fair amount. I mean, people have said, you know, if you're going to do that, go north-south. Okay, well, like, 
Louisville's kind of north, especially compared to. We're never going to go north. That that should be that should be well known. This will never the conference will never be broken down north south. How about north south with Miami in the north? Maybe that would work, but there's no way the north teams would give up never playing the, the chance to play in Florida at least once every two years. Um, they're just, I think it's too difficult to make it something every, I mean, it's, it's probably impossible to make something that everyone will agree to, but North South, you're weighing everything in the South so much with, you know, Clemson, Florida State already are in the same division than they still are. Then you have Georgia Tech, which is a big recruiting thing down there as well. Um, one of the Carolina schools gets left out of the South, which people wouldn't like. Uh, Virginia probably wouldn't like being in the North, which they'd probably be forced into. Like, it's just hard to break that down without someone having a major uh, gripe and without you, – you have to split up the Southern the, the southern powers and the Florida schools. See, for me, the, the easy solution at least would be send Miami North, keep the Carolina schools south, and then you're good. And, and then make Louisville North and Virginia North. And Virginia Tech North, yes. And Virginia Tech North. I, I don't know. I, I think it'd be very difficult. I, I'd rather, a, I'd rather just not have divisions, which I still don't know why that's a Agreed. rule. Um, well, it's that not would be, be much What? It's not going to be much longer, given the economy ruling. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. There's no reason for it. Or people have brought up just rotating through the divisions every year, like making the divisions different on a yearly basis. But that seems people just be so confused, um, which is really just not having divisions. But uh, I don't know. I, I think we'll hopefully uh, hopefully have something a better solution soon, because I just don't think there's a way to make these two divisions equitable and keep everyone happy in terms of what they want for with recruiting and everything. Because everyone wants to play uh, Miami. Um, everyone wants to play Georgia Tech or Clemson, but more so Georgia Tech just because it's in Atlanta. But they don't want to do it on such an irregular basis where the triple option becomes a thing or they you know, aren't, are not only there every 12 years. Um, Clemson will com- complain about something because that's what they do. North Carolina schools have all their rivalries that they can't break up, and then Virginia thinks it's in North Carolina. Uh, so it's, I don't know, it's a tough, tough thing to solve. I think no divisions would just be easier and just keep – you know, then just keep the permanent rivalries you need to keep. All right, and I think I think that's probably the best solution. Just the uh, the three. I mean, Ryan Savick came up with this over at, at BC Interruption. A lot of other people have kind of run with it since. Just the you know the three consistent rivals that happen every year, and then there's the five rotating teams where you actually cycle through the whole thing um, every two years. Which I think it's really the ideal situation you're looking for, right? Yeah, and then you can tell, I mean, then pretty much every player will know if you come to Syracuse, you will play Miami in the Dome and you'll play Miami in the road and you'll play Clemson uh, at home and you'll play at Death Valley. And then, you know, you just, you can sell everyone. Like, because right now you can't do that. You can't tell a kid from uh, Atlanta that he'll play at home unless you're recruiting him, you know, two years from now or something. I don't want to do the math in my head, but it's, it's real mess, like, there's so many solutions that are better than what we have now just because it doesn't feel like we're in the same division, uh, same conference as a lot of these schools just because we just never play them. Yeah, that is the wacky part. I think, you know, you see it with us. You see it with the SEC as well. Um, the Big Ten, obviously going to nine games, um, I think they're going to be better off. 
I think the new, because they don't have protected rivalries anymore, right, with the East-West alignment? I don't think so, but I don't really remember. It's, it's so hard to keep track of these things. Um, I don't I don't remember hearing that they did. I don't know who they did. Yeah, see. like if they don't have protected, I mean, that's super easy to just, you know, you face every, you face obviously everybody in your division in six games, and then you face three each year, and you just kind of rotate. And like everybody gets to play one another. SEC and ACC, because of their rivalries within each other's conferences, you know, have that extra wrench kind of thrown in. Plus, I think the SEC would freak out if they ever went to nine games and, and effectively, you know, put up a blocker for for them to get to the, the college football playoff. So yeah, obviously, I mean, you know, you can go that's the big thing. They just want, they just need wins. And I don't really blame them, but I don't know. I think it's better for fans if you have more competitive games. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be upset if the FBS rule just became you can't play FCS teams anymore. And I'm sure there will be a lot of that balt at that and that the FCS probably wouldn't be happy because they don't get paid. But um, I'd rather just play nine ACC, get me one really good game like the LSU game, and then give me two decent, like, 75% chance to win games, and I'll be happy. I'd buy that. All right, before we wrap up, anything else about Louisville before we uh, we part ways and and get ready for what should be a a fun Saturday night? I know uh, we have a game watching party. Friday night, we have we have the uh, we're we're on ESPN. That's right. uh, We'll be seeing us uh, for better or worse. Meant to say Friday night. I'll be in Syracuse, so if you want to hang out at Fagan's or Chuck's or something, drop me a line. Um, I'll be happy to complain about the game with you afterwards if we lose. I will be working from home on Friday, so I can watch the game when it starts at 4 p.m. Pacific time, along with my one of my friends at work, who is also a Syracuse grad. And I'll be watching the game here from my couch. As will my wife, who pretends that she doesn't care about Syracuse football, which, whatever. I've already used the Tutorial Idiot line on her a couple times. <laughs> Didn't go as well as it does in the comments section. There's no real life sarcasm fun. No, you have to have, like, inflection and stuff. It requires skill. <laughs> Indeed. All right. So on that note, uh, I guess we can close out. Uh, Dan, thanks again for joining. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Everyone else, uh, thanks for tuning in. This has been Troy Noons, an absolute podcast sponsored by Audible.com. Please be sure to subscribe and rate and review us on Blog Talk and iTunes. Uh, We'll be eternally grateful. And, uh, yeah, go Orange this Friday, because, honestly, if we don't win this game, we're kind of screwed. Go Orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a -a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. 
from delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.